In both the Old and New Testament, the sanctuary and its services figure prominently in the Bible. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament are devoted to this topic. The Psalms are the words in poetry and song that were to be chanted by the choirs and priests and people in its worship. Many chapters in Exodus are devoted to its construction, the Philistines' capture of the ark, David's involvement with fundraising, details of temple construction by Solomon, its destruction by Nebuchadnezzar, its reconstruction by Ezra, all part of the history of the Bible. The prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel, Jesus' prophecies of its destruction, John's prophecies in Revelation, to name only a few of its references in the Bible. This makes it amazing that it is seldom <clears throat> mentioned or understood by Christians today. The Bible uses various descriptions to help us understand the importance and purpose of the Old Testament sanctuary service. Paul tells us that the sanctuary priests are a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When our son Philip was young, we bought him a plastic model engine to build. We wanted him to know something about an engine. He learned about combustion engines by building a little copy of an engine. The sanctuary and its services are a little copy of the genuine, real, original worship center in heaven. It's a miniature, a model, helping us picture and understand the heaven's work for our salvation. But Paul also compared the sanctuary services to a shadow. As a physician, I've been exposed to lots of shadows. X-rays, you see, are shadows. They're helpful, but they require more than one view if you're going to see three dimensions. They're just shadows, two-dimensional. To gain the message of the sanctuary, many views must be carefully considered. Let's quickly review the sanctuary services. There were daily or continuous services in the sanctuary. These also included the weekly Seventh-day Sabbath ceremonies and the monthly New Moon ceremonies. In addition, there was the yearly closing service done on the Day of Atonement. To understand the services, we should quickly review the Jewish yearly worship calendar. There were three spring festivals, which included Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Waving of the First Fruits. These three first feasts occurred all together and lasted just about a week. Fifty days later, at the end of the winter harvest, was Pentecost, a one-day feast. In the fall, after the harvest, there were three feasts, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and closing with the Feast of Tabernacles, looking back on the wilderness wandering and looking forward to the dwelling in, in uh, New Jerusalem in heaven. This occupied 10 days. Three of these feasts were required. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This morning, we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur, Judgment. The cleansing of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment is all part of the cleansing of the sanctuary. But just before we begin this topic, I need to make one more point because some people get confused by this. How many think this is Sherry, my wife? It's actually not. Um, it's just a picture of her. 
Don't fall in love with a picture. Jews preferred the shadow, the copy, and they rejected what it was a picture of, Christ and his work when he appeared. Just as a blueprint points to the finished building, so the ceremonial service pointed forward to the finished product, but was not the product itself. After the building is complete, the blueprint is only useful to help us understand. The law of ceremonies was made null and void by the crucifixion of Christ. Those who believe we are still required to keep the feast do not comprehend the full purpose and meaning of the very feast they claim to keep. Those who profess to keep the feast are inadvertently denying the real meaning and value of the ancient Jewish feast. With this introduction, let's learn about the most sacred day of the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Coming at the very end of the Jewish calendar, this represents the end of time just before Jesus' coming. This day determines whether a Jew's sins were forgiven and whether the Jew would be cut off from the people of Israel in the Old Testament type. It determines in the reality who are God's people and who are not God's people. But before we go further, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are inadequate to talk about such solemn and important topics. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in, capture our minds. Let us give you our minds for you to capture. Um, protect us from distractions. And may we come away understanding a renewed vision of Jesus and his plan that includes our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God begins his instruction on this ceremony with a very solemn reminder and warning. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. If you are unable to see this, this is Luke 16, starting with verse 1. Leviticus. I said Luke, didn't I? I was just checking. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. The book of Genesis covers 2,300 years of history. The book of Exodus covers about 360 years of history. But the book of Leviticus covers one month of history. But it's the important first month of the Wilderness Tabernacles operation. Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, were ordained as priests and ministered in the sanctuary with Aaron their father, the high priest. Within a few days of the sanctuary services being initiated, Nadab and Abihu came into the temple after drinking alcoholic wine. Instead of lighting the incense with a holy fire started by God, these young men used a more convenient method of lighting the fire using their own kindling. As a result, a fire blazed out from the Holy of Holies and consumed them. 
Just as God did not accept Cain's offering, God did not accept this offering. God is giving here a miniature of the second death when once again, fire comes from the presence of God and devours the wicked. Our society, our culture, our very worship in this culture and society is often rebellious and irreverent. People treat God with disrespect. They take His name in vain. But God's presence is holy and true worship is reverent. And in this end-time ceremony, the end-time worshipers were reminded of the importance of reverence. This is particularly important for Seventh-day Adventists who are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. And it reminds us of the importance of temperance in all things and the avoidance of the wine of Babylon. Now, how do we offer profane or common fire instead of the sacred fire in our lives and in our worship? In... Uh, the second volume of Mind, Character, and Personality, page 557, we read, the truth of God has not been magnified in his believing people because they have not brought it into their personal experience. You remember, Jesus was to come and magnify the law and make it honorable. We are to be magnifiers of God's principles and make them honorable. How do they do this? Um, how, how do they uh, not bring this into their lives? How do they fail to magnify? Uh, magnify God's word they conform to the world and to depend on it for their influence they allow the world to convert them and introduce the common fire to take the place of the sacred that they may in their line of work meet the world standard so if we are meeting the world standard in our line of work whatever it is we're offering common fire so in place of carrying a godly influence wherever we go, we carry a common influence wherever we are. Our churches can also offer common or profane fire. Notice one way this can be done. Gospel Workers 387, 383. Some ministers make the mistake of supposing that success depends on draw, drawing a large congregation by outward display and then delivering the message of truth in a theatrical style. But this is using common fire instead of the sacred fire of God's kindling. We don't need drama, puppets, other forms of common fire in our worship of God. God has given specific instruction on how we are to approach Him and how and when we are to worship. The sanctuary reminds us that God sets our calendar. We don't worship based on our whims, our inclinations, our convenience. We worship when and how God directs us. Even the high priest was not to come into the most holy place anytime he desired. He didn't set the rules for God. God set the rules for him. He would go into the holy place, most holy place, once a year. At the end of the chapter, the specific day was identified. The most holy place was only to be entered in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. The purpose of this yearly service was atonement, cleansing. The word atonement means at one meant. Two individuals have been separate. Two individuals have been at war. But now they are not simply 
in a truce, they are at one. They are unified. This is at one meant. But there's more. Atonement and cleansing are equivalent terms. When you are atoned, you are clean. When you are clean, you are atoned. Since sin separates us from God, when the day of atonement was cleaning us from sin, it was bringing us into union with God. As sin leaves, God comes in. At one When sin is removed from us, God is united to us. So the day of atonement is the day of cleansing. This is the day when sin is eradicated from the life and God fills the life. In our normal state, sin fills our thoughts. Our actions are selfish. Our habits are impure. God is banished from our lives. But through the death of Christ on the cross and the ministration of Christ in the sanctuary and the cleansing of the sanctuary on the day of atonement, the day of cleansing, the process that begins in forgiveness ends in cleansing. What begins in justification ends in sanctification. Begins in a promise. It ends in accomplishment. What begins with faith ends in fact. The Apostle John is really applying the sanctuary message in a famous verse. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, confession takes place at the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Forgiveness occurs in the holy, holy place. Confession and forgiveness are illustrated in these daily sanctuary services. Cleansing us from all unrighteousness is the experience of the most holy place. Notice we confess, but it is Christ who forgives and it is Christ who cleanses us. We can no more cleanse ourselves from sin than we can forgive ourselves for sins we commit. Notice also that Christ's cleansing is not partial. Christ does not cleanse us from some sins, but is unable to cleanse us from all of our sins. He cleanses from all unrighteousness. Cleansing is illustrated by the yearly day of atonement service. Notice the verses in Leviticus 16 again. Every part of the sanctuary is cleansed and certain of its worshipers are cleansed. Then he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This yearly cleansing service was the most significant service in the entire sanctuary service. This was the culmination of the Jewish worship. The sanctuary service begins outside the sanctuary. Outside the sanctuary is death row where every person is guilty of universally recognized sin. Paul mentions such things as sexual immorality, covetousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, violence, pride, boasting, disobedience to parents, and people instinctively know worldwide that God forbids such things. We know, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same knowing that God forbids it, but have pleasure in them that do them. These are in death row. But not everyone in sin's death row wants to stay there. And in the sanctuary, there is a city of refuge. Let's briefly examine the sanctuary service and see how this is done. 
Coming to the gate of the temple courtyard, the sinner confessed his sin on the innocent lamb of God. Without a complaint, the lamb accepted the sin. The lamb's throat was slit. The blood gushed out. And as the lamb's life was ending, the blood was caught in a basin. Then the lamb's body is placed on the altar of burnt offering and burned ashes. The fire from the altar was used to light the incense in the censers. The smoke of the altar rising above the sanctuary can be seen in, by all in the encampment. It reminds them of the fires of hell that will burn up the wicked so they could see there above the altar the smoke going up and realize from wherever they were looking toward the sanctuary but for the lamb, the innocent lamb, taking my burden, I would be in that fire. I deserve the punishment of death by burning, but the lamb is burned in my place. The blood is ministered on our behalf in heaven where our sins are forgiven. This is a daily service. When a sinner unloads his burden at the foot of the cross, notice this, uh, my wife read this to me this week and I just had to share it with you. Then it is that peace and happiness comes to him. You want peace and happiness? Unload your burden at the foot of the cross there at the altar. And there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents more than 99 who need more repentance. You not only have joy, but you give joy. The Lord God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save and he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. As heaven appreciates the struggles of those who are fighting for the crown of everlasting life that they may be partakers with Christ in the city of God, the very streets of which are pre or gold, as it were, transparent glass. God wants you there. Christ wants you there. The heavenly host wants you there. The angels are willing to stand in the outer circle and let those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus stand in that inner circle closest to God. They're willing to be farther from God that you can be closer. When we confess, we are accepted into this family of God and are given a title to heaven. The daily service gives us our title to heaven. The title places our name in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus grants us mercy and accepts our case and will represent us before the judge who sits at the mercy seat. This makes it possible for us to come boldly to the throne of grace where our case is pending. But the title to heaven is not the end of the process. It is the beginning. Many desire a way to escape from the penalty of sin like we heard in the children's story, yet continue to indulge in the sin that brings the penalty. And this is the appeal of every false gospel. But Jesus Christ, never forget this, is not an accomplice to sin. He's not an enabler to sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Like the man who lives with his girlfriend, seeking through fornication to gain the lawful pleasures of marriage, but avoiding the necessity of fulfilling the duties of marriage. Many want the title of heaven's mansions without the necessity of meeting the fitness required for citizenship. But the sanctuary city of refuge provides both the title and fitness for heaven. 
The path to salvation does not stop with the confession of our sins on the Lamb and its death. The blood that is necessary for our forgiveness is just as necessary for our cleansing. The sanctuary had a yearly service that taught this essential fitting for heaven by cleansing or purging from sin, the Day of Atonement. To help us understand, Jesus told the story of a servant who had been borrowing from his master year after year, promising to repay the debt the next year. However, instead of repaying the debt, every year found him mismanaging his assets and going deeper and deeper into debt. Finally, he owed his master millions of dollars that he could never repay. The master, realizing this debt could not be repaid, wrote an order to liquidate the servant's assets, sell his children and, and wife as slaves, and put him in jail until he paid the debt that was still outstanding. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. The man left the master's presence feeling happy and free. He'd been forgiven. This is the story of the altar of the sanctuary, the cross of Golgotha. This is the beginning of the gospel story. But the gospel does not end at the cross, just as the sanctuary service did not end at the altar. That just forgiven servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Though this is just a trifling amount compared to the immense sum he had just been forgiven, the forgiven sermon servant laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. The master heard about what was done and was angry, so he called the servant back and told him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And then the RSV says the next verse, and in anger his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. This man had been forgiven but was unchanged. He had not been cleansed. Don't miss the next verse. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You see, the whole purpose of forgiveness is cleansing. Forgiveness is not the end. It is God's means to the end. Being accepted to Loma Linda Medical School was exciting and a a necessary first step before I could become a physician. But did my acceptance into medical school guarantee my graduation from medical school? There was a process to endure. There were facts to learn and tests to pass. By that step, the medical school was saying they would do everything they could to make it possible for me to graduate. I wasn't in this process alone. The medical school would provide the best possible teachers as well as other essential helps to make certain I would succeed. They were with me all the way. They were rooting for my success. But I was also agreeing to participate in the process with all my power. I would faithfully attend labs and classes and diligently study books and notes. When we receive our title to heaven, our names are written in the book of life. When we accept God's forgiveness, we acknowledge entering a process of cleansing from sin. When we receive our title to heaven, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
We are accepted into Christ's school in preparation for eternal life. My title for heaven is God's promise to provide me everything that is necessary for my salvation. He's rooting for my salvation, but it does not guarantee a diploma, for at no time does God force me to continue the process. I can choose to drop out or participate spasmodically without enthusiasm or effort. This is my choosing not to receive a diploma. Cleansing is allowing God to remove the love of sin from my life. If I am joined to my sinful idols and ref refuse this purging process, my sin overcomes me instead of me letting God overcome sin through me. But he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That occurs in the Day of Atonement. Cleansing or purging from sin equals overcoming equals fitness for heaven. Through defects in the character, we're told in great controversy, Satan works to gain control of the whole mind, and he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. So defects are what give Satan the opportunity to access my mind. Therefore, he is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his fatal sophistry that it is, read it with me, impossible for them to overcome. See, he wants to tell the homosexual, it's impossible for you to overcome. He wants to tell the drug addict, it's impossible for you to come, overcome. And he wants to tell the pornography addict, he wants to tell the slave to impatience that it is impossible to overcome, therefore it must not be necessary. But Jesus pleads in their behalf, his wounded hands, his bruised body, and he declares to all who would follow him, my grace is sufficient for thee. Because you see, there's coming a time when there is no more forgiveness. There's coming a time when there's no more mercy. There is coming a time when Jesus ceases his intercession and declares, he that is holy will be holy still. Let's return to Leviticus 16. Sometimes people who read this chapter are confused by the terminology in the chapter. In this chapter, the term, term holy place is speaking of the holy place inside the veil where the mercy seat sits on the Ark of the Covenant. We generally call this the most holy place or the holy of holies. Later in the chapter, the term tabernacle of meeting is used to refer to what we would generally call the holy place. Sometimes it's also referred to as the first apartment. The altar is referring to the courtyard. Hmm. There we are. As we've seen, the altar of burnt offering was a type of the crucifixion of Christ on Calvary. All ceremonies that occurred in the courtyard refer to events in Christ's life occurring on this earth. The ceremonies occurring in the holy place, and I hope you all see there's a little bit of burning on that, probably can't, in the lamps. That was a lot of work to get a little flame on each one. Uh, the ceremonies occurring in the holy place were hidden from the people by a thick and beautifully embroidered veil. 
All events within the holy and most holy places are events we cannot see, for they occur in heaven. But by studying the sanctuary services, we can look at the events that begin in heaven after Jesus ascended. On the Day of Atonement, the daily ministration ceased, and different services occurred in the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. This represented the final ministration of Jesus in heaven just prior to his return. Now please notice something very interesting. Where would Jesus appear when he came to the most holy place? The cloud above the mercy seat. What was the associated with Jesus' ascension to heaven? A cloud. Where does Jesus appear in the most holy place? Cloud. Where will Jesus appear when he comes again? A cloud. We sang about it in your opening song. We only have time to briefly review the Day of Atonement service. Detailed instructions for the high priest are given in Leviticus 16. They deserve careful study. But on this day, detailed instruction for the behavior of the people is also given and is found in Leviticus 23, 27 through 32. This, this passage must also be carefully studied. God begins his instruction with a summary of what the high priest was to do in the most holy place. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place, reference to the most holy place, of course, here, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. Remember this reference referring to the most holy place. In the daily service, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the veil in the holy place. But on the day of atonement, the blood of cleansing must be sprinkled within the most holy place on the mercy seat to cleanse the entire sanctuary, the most holy place, the holy place, the altar, the priest, and the people. The instruction for the high priest ministration on the day of atonement is explicit and detailed. Because of the constraints of time, I'm only going to give the highlights, but I have the verses on the screen so you can check the accuracy of this summary while we're going through it. The service begins in the courtyard with the high priest washing at the labor, then donning special white and holy garments. You should not overlook the fact that the required garment of the high priest was different on the Day of Atonement than on other days. The washing and change of garments has some very practical implications for us today in the antitypical Day of Atonement. The washing, of course, represents our baptism. But baptism alone is not sufficient. It must be accompanied by a holy life represented by the white garments. This is to remind us that our life must be different in the light of the Day of Atonement. The garments were different. Just as the high priest on the Day of Atonement was instructed on what to wear following his baptism, at the end of time, Christians must be instructed in what to wear following their baptism. Volume 6, page 96, it says, one of the points upon which those newly come to the faith will need instruction is the subject address. Let the newly con new converts be faithfully dealt with. Are they vain in dress? Do they cherish pride of heart? The idolatry of dress is a moral disease. It must not be taken over into the new life. In most cases, submission to the gospel requirements will demand a decided change in the dress. But notice what immediately follows this instruction. In the tabernacle service, she's going to the tabernacle service. God instructed her through the sanctuary service. In the tabernacle service, God specified every detail concerning the garments of those who ministered before him. Thus, we are taught that he has a preference in regard to the dress of those who serve him. 
Very specific were the directions given in regard to Aaron's robe for his dress was symbolic. So the dress of Christ followers should be, what does it say? Symbolic. In all things, we are representatives of him. Our appearance in every respect should be characterized by, read those three words, neatness, modesty, and purity. But the Word of God gives no sanction to the making of changes in apparel merely for the sake of fashion that we may appear like the world. Christians are not to decorate the person with costly array or expensive ornaments. Notice this from Manuscript 56, 1900. Christians should not neglect to search the Scriptures on these points. They need to understand that which the Lord of Heaven appreciates in even the dressing of the body. Those who are earnest in seeking for the grace of Christ will heed the precious words of instruction inspired of God. Even the style of the apparel will express the truth of the gospel. We can preach a sermon about the gospel in the way we dress. I want to have my dress preaching the gospel when my lips can't. Don't you? Their dress bears its testimony. Notice where what I wear, where it testifies my own family, my church family, and the world that they are being purified from vanity and selfishness. What's our testimony? The word purified means cleansed. We are living in the day of atonement, the day of cleansing. They demonstrate that they are not idolaters. The style of the apparel will express the truth of the gospel but we must hurry on. After baptism and changing of his clothes, the high priest went outside the sanctuary, outside the gate where two goats and a ram were provided by the people and bullock by the high priest. The two goats brought to the entrance of the courtyard and one was selected by Lot. Going back into the courtyard, the high priest slit the throat of the ram and the Lot selected goat and their blood was collected in a basin. The goat and ram were then burned on the altar. The coals from the altar were lifted by tongs and placed in the incense containers. Twice the high priest enters the most holy place, cleansing himself in the most holy place, the holy place in the courtyard altar, with these coals and blood from the altar. So let's look at this a little more closely. The high priest takes through these tongs, um, from the altar of burnt offering, those glowing coals still warm from the sanctuary, from the sacrifice. This would fill the censer. Uh, they would then fill the censer with sweet in incense. And uh, with this incense that was smoking, they would bring it within the veil and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. As the high priest ministers in the sanctuary carrying the incense, the most holy place fills with the fragrant incense smoke and veils the glory of God, protecting the life of the high priest. Christ's sacrifice of himself on Calvary calls for our sacrifice of ourselves for him and it provides that holy fire for our lives. Those glowing embers from the altar of sacrifice change us. They change our thoughts, our speech, our actions. Isaiah saw the Day of Atonement service in vision and it changed him deeply. 
In vision, he was permitted to enter the most holy place. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Above it stood seraphim, and the house was filled with smoke. This, dear folk, is the day of atonement being described right there. And when we enter the most holy place, we see more clearly our own uncleanness. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The most holy place offers us a dif- deeper cleansing because it reveals a, a, a fuller Christ. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. It is the coals of Calvary that cleanses. It's the coals of Calvary that cleanse our lips. They cleanse our minds and they cleanse our actions. At the Day of Atonement service, the most holy place was clean. The holy place was clean. The courtyard was clean. And the people were clean. The blood of Jesus had at last done a thorough work in the lives of believers. It had produced a clean church and a clean people. And Jesus could finally say, probation is done. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. The door of mercy is shut. Jesus' ministration and pleading in my behalf is stopped. The Day of Atonement concluded with the confession of all the sins of God's people on the head of the scapegoat, which was led into the wilderness to perish alone. During this service, God not only gave instruction for what the high priest was to do, but instruction for what the people were to do. Leviticus 23, 27, also the 10th day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. This was not a day of business as usual. Nothing must distract us from the work of preparation For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be, what are the next two words? Cut off from his people. This was serious. It would determine whether your name remained on God's Lamb's Lamb's Book of Life or if it was removed from heaven's role as one of God's people. This fall festival occurred immediately after the harvest The day of salvation was now closing, and this was the final appeal, the final call. After this day, the lost could only exclaim, the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. When the Seventh-day Adventist church began, there was much discussion and controversy over when to begin the Sabbath. Should the Sabbath begin at midnight? Should the Sabbath begin at sunrise? Should the Sabbath begin at 6 p.m.? Because of the influence of Joseph Bates, the consensus view of the Sabbath's beginning was at 6 p.m. How appropriate 
that we find when to begin the Sabbath in the very instruction to God's people about the Day of Atonement. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. It was J. N. Andrews' detailed and thorough study of this verse that, Seventh Ad- that led Seventh-day Adventists to develop their biblical practice of keeping Sabbath from Friday sunset to Sabbath sunset. Early this morning, I was meditating on these thoughts and I was reminded and convicted of the importance of watching the edges of the Sabbath. Bind about, we're told, this is letter 4, 1898, bind about the edges of the Sabbath. How do we do this? By properly utilizing Friday. What needs to be done on Friday well before the Sabbath begins? Let all, she continues, let all the, let all the work of preparation. Now what does all the work of preparation include? She then gives some examples. Such things as cleaning the body. What is cleansing the body? Taking our showers, taking our baths. That's all part of preparation for the Sabbath. That's not part of the Sabbath. Blacking the boots. Today, what would we call that? Polishing our shoes. So what are we going to wear on the Sabbath should be prepared. Our clothes washed and ironed. All that's done before the sun sets and the Sabbath hours commence. Let all the work of preparation be finished early. And the family assemble early to read the word, to sing and pray. Notice the next word. Before the Sabbath shall begin. Let us study this. For we have all been remiss. What an acknowledgement from a prophetic voice that she herself had allowed a laxness to come into her own Sabbath preparation. Let's be honest, we've all been remiss. It's so easy for us to forget. That is why God said to remember. If we discover our family too has been negligent here, what should we do? We need to confess to God and to one another. That simple, clear. Notice, We don't stop with confession. The sanctuary service doesn't stop with confession. We want the most holy place experience and begin anew to make special arrangements that every member of the family may be prepared to greet the Sabbath with every preparation made to honor the Lord's day that he has sanctified and blessed. You see, the Sabbath is designed to be a family uniter. The family time of the Sabbath begins with family time on Friday, working together to be prepared for the Sabbath. I love the sanctuary message. It's a message of hope. It is a message of beginning again. It's a message of renewal. Renewal of our own commitments and our family commitments. We can take our sins to the altar of burnt offering. And there we confess our sins and start afresh. Start anew. And through the week, we unite our families around Sabbath preparation. Just as we are preparing to meet Jesus in the clouds of heaven, we are preparing to meet him as the Sabbath draws on. We are expected and prepared early for his presence. And as the sacred hours descend, he will descend into our hearts, into our homes. We will gain the special Sabbath blessings he's reserved for us in this day of atonement. Our homes are clean. Our bodies are clean. And Jesus makes our hearts clean. 
Ellen White gave some very practical instruction to her son Edson. She said, Friday, commence in the morning to prepare for the Sabbath and one hour before sundown, have everything done and you be prepared for reading. He was the head of the home. He was prepared for the Sabbath Bible reading, prepared to make it interesting and practical for himself, his children and his wife, his family. Brothers and sisters, the year 2018 has almost closed and a new year is about to begin. This morning we've considered the end of year experience God designed for the Israelites, a preparation for the new year. Do you want to have a new year heart, a new heart for the new year? Have you found that you've been distracted from the only priority of life during the Day of Atonement? The priority of being clean and ready for the Sabbath in preparation for being ready for Christ's coming. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? This is a time of cleaning. There are some places in a house that are hard to clean. The dirt seems to stick like glue or rapidly reoccur like fungus. There may be something in your life that Jesus wants to clean out, but you've been cherishing it, been holding on to it. It may be someone you feel has hurt you and you just enjoy not forgiving them, holding that grudge. You may be holding a grievance against a family member for actions back in childhood, a sore that's still festering. But if I am unforgiving, I am unforgiven. You may be indulging in immoral thoughts, actions, habits, or in an immoral relationship that you are choosing over heaven. Will you take this opportunity to come clean and be clean? It may be dress. You may be dressing to please yourself or even someone else in your life instead of dressing to please the Lord. You may be breaking the Sabbath or careless with the edges of the Sabbath. It may be something completely different. Or it may be that you feel that you are rich and increased with goods and really don't need any cleaning from Jesus. Like the rich young ruler, you may feel like you've kept the commandments from your youth. That is actually most of our cases because we're blind to our defects. Whatever it is, would you tell Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I want to be clean. And I want to ask Jesus to do all that deep cleaning necessary to rid me of every evil thought, every evil desire to keep me from any evil action. Is there someone he else here that would like to join me in asking for the Day of Atonement cleansing during this new year? If you seek him with your whole heart, he will hear and answer that prayer. A man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Did Jesus hear that prayer? Was he willing? Um, then he put his hand and touched him. I am willing, be clean, cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to make an offering for your cleansing. That is the day of atonement. We're clean and make an offering.